He did for dance what Picasso did for painting. He changed the art and the way we see the human form. He read books, he played the piano, he absorbed, he cooked, he gardened, he liked carpentry, and he made ballets. The rest was left unspoken. It is all in the dances, he said, but it wasn't quite. That is from the introduction to Jennifer Homans' new book, Mr. B, George Balanchine's 20th Century. It is fantastic. Genuinely, I cannot emphasise quite enough how good this book is. And so, all the more reason for being extremely grateful to have Jennifer here this evening at John Sanders. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Jennifer, you know a lot about ballet, much more than I do. You're a professional dancer, trained at Balanchine School of American Ballet. But interestingly, you've also studied ballet and the politics and culture surrounding it. You've done a PhD in early modern history and following that wrote a book, Apollo's Angels, a history of ballet, considered by many to be the history of ballet. Your new book, Ten Years in the Making, is about George Balanchine. Why him? Who was he? The reason I chose Balanchine is that he's really, uh, to my mind, one of the great choreographers of all time. So he was a, a natural subject for somebody who was interested in dance and the history of dance. And his biography is, is a kind of it's story of the 20th century. So as you said, you know, it gave me a chance to, to look at both history and art and the making of an artist and what it was like for him to be an artist. So, you know, this is a story that, that, that starts in Russia in, with his, his birth in 1904. And, you know, so you get the, the imperial Russia and, and the whole flavor of that. He lives through the revolution as a, as a, as a child and as a young adult. Um, he's thrust into the Russian avant-garde. He ends up in Europe uh, in the interwar period, and he's Weimar, Paris. You know, he just he 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 seems to find himself in in the most um, important places in the history of Western art in the 20th century. And then he ends up in New York in 1933, where he stays and co-founds the New York City Ballet in 1948, and until his death in. 1983. So it's really a, um, a full span of the century that he basically walks through and then tries to incorporate in his dances. That is one of the reasons I think the book is so good, because it's, it's more than a biography. It's a kind of, it's about art and politics and the personalities of, the, of, these, of these eras in Tsarist St. Petersburg or Weimar Germany or wherever. And you get the sense that even though there are these upheavals, political or personal or these illnesses that he goes through he always seems to be in the right place at the right time why do you think that was um i mean i think it's partly uh, what he would have called fate uh but it's also an instinct that he seemed to have you know he left russia in in 1924 and just as lenin was coming to power and just as things were were in his experience difficult a friend disappeared mysteriously and was drowned and he was felt sure they all thought it was a you know because she may have been involved with um the secret police or the or the state in some ways that she shouldn't have been it was getting really difficult and it was hard for him to make work so he had a, a kind of 
but you know lots of people had that experience and didn't leave but he had a kind of instinct and and he was also it's it, it's it sounds a little um precious but he was very religious and i think he had a feeling that he should just go wherever god and the world took him and so he didn't question a lot of should i shouldn't i should i should i not he you know the opportunity came and he went and then in Paris in, in 1933, he was approached by Lincoln Kirstein, a kind of American impresario who wanted to be a, an American Diaghilev. And he, you know, he said to him, why don't you come to Hartford, Connecticut, and found a dance school and company? And you know, this was kind of a crazy idea. Balanchine could certainly have said, you got to be kidding. I'm in Paris. I'm well known. I'm, you know, but he had a sense of his own destiny and of adventure and his ties were few because they had been broken. And we can talk about that, you know, many times and having left his family behind. So he, 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 he followed himself. He followed currents. He followed some kind of in a way, it's that he submitted. Mm. Let's let's talk about that that restlessness, but also the the cutting of ties, and the fact that he found himself in this quite stateless, nomadic existence where he couldn't really call anywhere home, and and even his own sense of his own past. You said at the beginning of a chapter about his childhood that sand was building upon sand, and there's this very uneasy sense of him not even knowing his own family, his own heritage and him kind of reinventing himself at every turn. No, it's a very, I mean, really it's a, it's a study of somebody of exile, and it's a study of, of somebody who, whose life was torn apart by war and revolution. And he, you know, should, he, should we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, his, let's his, talk I think about his that. childhood is one of the most interesting parts of it, yeah. and the atmosphere of, of him in the wings of these ballet schools in St. Petersburg with their breath kind of frosting for their eyes because the heating's off, people are collapsing in the streets. It's, it, it's amazing. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary story because, you know, it, it, he was born in 1904, so by the time the war comes, he's 10, he's in this dance school, and um, he's, he's learned the imperial art, but he's been left already, he's a boarder, so his parents have left him there. Now, he's not cut off from them, they, you know, he sees them on weekends or occasional visits, um, but then the war comes and all hell breaks loose and there's really um, no sense of stability or security in his entire world. And his family scatters and then as the revolution then takes hold, um, as he put it in one of the interviews that I uncovered in the research, as an interviewer asked him, you know, so what, what happened during the revolution? And he just looked at him and said, they started shooting. And, you know, you have this, these stories of him just like kind of running through the streets and hiding in doorways to avoid terror, the terror, and, and seeing people falling in the streets. St. Petersburg itself was, was a, a death field, you know, between the war and the returning soldiers and the injuries and the revolution itself. I mean, the morgues were all full, the bodies were being piled in the street, the smells were everywhere. Then comes the winter. It's you know, uh, it's a, a, 
was in, he was starving. He was ill from malnutrition with boils on his skin, and he did get TB at that time. He shouldn't have survived, is the, is, is, is the bottom line. But his family is by then dispersed, and his father, who was Georgian, goes back to Georgia. The mother eventually follows, and there he is. He's on his own, really, from, he, yeah. from, you know, from the moment that he's in the streets as a child trying to find food. He's on his own and he finds his way and he, and he gets out. He finds his way, he gets married and gets out. <laughs> you know, he manages, like, he, he, he not only gets out, but he gets out with a huge experience. So the experience is, on the one hand, these people destroyed my childhood and destroyed the world I knew and grew up in. And then on the other hand, oh my God, look at this revolutionary avant-garde. He wants to make dance progressive. He positions himself with, you know, Meyerhold and Mayakovsky. And um, he's, he's very much involved. He's working with Eisenstein, with, you know, people who are trying to push and dance is exploding. People are dancing naked. They're dancing acrobatically. They're dancing... In the you know in theaters in ways that they they hadn't and he's really interested in all of that so he takes away both things a sort of nostalgia for the old regime and a hatred for Bolsheviks and a a whole vocabulary of contemporary art that that was born at that moment. Let's talk about that because it is it's thrilling reading the passages about Weimar Germany and Paris and this mood of possibility and and vitality and the sense that what they're doing holds significance for them. You say, the goal was clear, to elevate dance and himself into the ranks of the revolutionary artists he so admired. The, th the thing is, it's not obvious, I don't think, how ballet, if you compare it to Malievich and painting or sculpture or, or other forms of expression, it's not obvious how ballet, something so about poise and elegance, would be an art form best placed to respond to World War One and the revolution and all the horrors he saw firsthand, and and I'm interested, how did he reconcile this very stately, um, classical, courtly ballet with those experiences that were horrifying? Yeah, I mean, this in a way is the question of the book, because it's it's um, you know it took me a long time writing it to to figure out what the answer to that is, and what I what I what I came to see was that, you know, the sort of more obvious side of it was that he was deeply influenced by ideas of, uh, you know, the body as machine and of um, the automaton and dolls. These were all interested, you know, the things that artists across the landscape were interested in at the time. He was very interested in um, fragments and broken bodies. And this takes you into Weimar and some of the German Expressionist artists. So while he did eventually return to a, a kind of classical base, he was involved in lots of other, you know, he was a, deeply involved in surrealism, for example, in the interwar period, and worked with a lot of artists who were, who were using classical forms or interested in using classical forms to... Um, so reinvent the art form in the in the light of the experiences they had had, and one of the ways he ended up doing this is, you know, 
the imperial body, if you think of it, the imperial ballet body, the poise you were talking about, the sense of uh, stateliness of, of an aristocratic art form, is something that he both kept and let go of. Because the, the imperial body is very much, if you imagine you know, a body made of blocks, and you stack them one on top of each other, and you arrange them so that everything balances, and you have everything symmetrical, and the thing will stand. And what he did basically is say, is knock that over, and say the body is already broken. The body is chaotic, unstable. It needs a different organizational principle. And you get this when you train in his school, you know, is that, that the organizational principle that he ended up inventing over the course of his life with the dancers he was working with has to do with basically the physics of energy coursing through the body in oppositions and in, uh, and in points of unbalance. So this part balances that part. And, you know, if you, if you, it has to do with movement. So if you're moving and you're constantly reconfiguring the body, then you can keep it balanced. And it has a classical look, even though it's a completely reorganized organism. When he's in Paris and when he's in Weimar, Germany, he's moving in these thir circles with Diaghilev and he's, he's still uh, digesting the ideas of Mayakovsky and these avant-gardes from, from Russia and the, and the early USSR. But then there comes this new figure called Lincoln Kirstein, who I'd never heard of, but who's fascinating. And um, I wonder if we could just talk about him for a bit, because as you find out when you read the book, he was one of the monuments men during World War II, salvaging art stolen and hidden by the Nazis. And although he had a very unstable mental temperament, and his diaries paint him as this tormented, sensitive but quite obsessive man, still for Balanchine, he was a constant. And um, let's talk about him for a bit. How, how did him and Balanchine cross paths? I mean, the way they cross paths is so interesting because it's it was actually something that probably wouldn't have happened if Lincoln hadn't made it happen. And that's kind of who Lincoln was. And he was a, you know, he was a Boston-born in a, a Jewish family that had come from a German emigre background uh, into money because his father was a, one of the founding directors of Filene's department store. And so they beca he became a kind of pro became prominent Jewish family in Boston. And Lincoln was a kind of awkward person. He's like 6'2", maybe, I can't remember exactly, 250 pounds, a huge man. And I mean, even when I was a dancer, I remembered him coming into the studio and he would just, in a dark suit, and he was all humped over and he would just stand there and stare at us. He was intense. He was almost frightening in his intensity. And that's what I, he was that way his whole life, I learned. Um, so he, he decided, he couldn't figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And I think partly because he was so ill at ease in his own body, he was very drawn to dance and something that would organize the, the body. He was also drawn to dance because he was very interested in art. And he was against the idea that we should remove the human figure from art and move towards ab abstraction. He did not like the abstract expressionist. There was a beautiful passage uh, early on when you begin um, introducing Lincoln to the book, where you say, even at a young age, dancing for Lincoln was more than an escape. 
It seemed to offer another way of life. The life he had been given, a bit like the body he lived in, did not quite fit. And again and again there's this theme of dance as an escape and as a refuge, and Lincoln seemed to offer that to Balanchine. Yes. I think they both, you know, I mean, dance became really, and I mean this in the fullest sense, Balanchine's life. It was his, his driving interest. Everything else fell to the side. And the same was true of Lincoln. Lincoln really devoted himself, and he devoted himself to dance, but above all to Balanchine. And it was this kind of way that Balanchine was working that was not, as Lincoln liked to put it, not ballet ballet. It wasn't um, a sort of 19th century Russian Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty, a sort of spectacle of, of dance and movement, as beautiful as that may be. Um, it was something new and radically new, different. And Lincoln decided, he just said, I'm in, you know, I'm in. And he stayed. Balanchine had a lot of people coming in and out of his life, including women and wives and, you know, but, you know, what I came to understand is that Lincoln never left. Lincoln was there from 1933 when they met until the, at, long after Balanchine's death. He was, he was just, a, there, there are these moments where, you know, you see these photos of them and they're standing in the wings and it's not that they were close friends or um, chummy in any way. Sometimes they would, they didn't like each other at all sometimes, but they were both still there because they were both devoted to the work they were doing. And Lincoln and Balanchine standing in the wings, just standing there, you know, like two, I think in the book I put it this way, it felt like this to me, two trees potted in the same ground. And they just, you know, each one is living in his own atmosphere, but they're both standing there and they just stay. And so Lincoln was really a solid force behind a man who, as we were discussing earlier, had very few ties. So Balanchine is there with Diaghilev in Paris, with the Ballet Russe, and he has this decision to make as whether to leave Paris, Hitler's in his ascendancy, or to go with Kirstein to America. Why does he decide to leave? What is there waiting for him in America? What's the scene like? He doesn't know. He just has a, an idea that, you know, American culture is for him uh, jazz and um, black dance and music, which really interests him a lot. It's um, film and uh, these sort of images he has from... Uh, from movies of his childhood and, and from talk and so he's I think interested because he wants to progress he wants to push dance forward and he sees America as a place that's pushing forward and as a and as a as a sort of um, place where there aren't people that know a lot about his art form which of course is true dance in the United States at the time was was quite undeveloped and he liked this because he didn't want any any theatrical airs in his dancers. No divas, no sort of sense of um, that they were performing and being being ballerinas. How did he want he, them to he perform? He wanted them to be direct, uh, without any sauce, as one critic put it. No sauce, just direct and plain and straightforward and all about the choreography and the steps and the music. So, the rest was just in the way. 
and he was trying to change the way people moved. So he thought that America was full of speed and the motor car and trains and new fashions and new and, and adventurous ways of, of living. So that's, I think, what drew him. Um, it was a kind of blank slate for him. And he wasn't wrong about that entirely. And so they get to New York. So they get to New York. And they start the first ballet school, the School of American Ballet, yeah. which opened in 1934. And it's interesting because its role wasn't just as a, a, a school for ballet. It almost seemed to be a, a home away from home for people like Balanchine and for, for refugees of war, effectively. Um, you refer to it as an exile society. Um, could you talk a bit about the demographic of those early years in those schools and, and the kind of people he was hiring and training? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I had no idea this would be the case, but it turns out that, so this is the first school and the only school that he founds in, in, in New York, and it's still going today. And at that time, you know, it was basically they opened the doors and who was going to come in? And who came in? As students, it turns out many of them were the children of of emigres and of people who had come from societies mainly in Central Europe and in Russia, who where where ballet was uh, uh, did have an old tradition and that it was respected and it was a way of of educating your child and so it was a a real kind of hub for them. It was also young, adventurous, I keep using that word adventurous, but it was that way. You know, these were women who often came from backgrounds that were, they didn't have a natural way forward. They weren't going to go to advanced education. They weren't going to, they, they just ended up in New York the way you might if you wanted to be an actor. And so they end up at the school and, and Balanchine really takes to them. And then the teachers themselves were often his fellow Russians who had also, I mean, don't forget, it's a, it's a huge emigration from all over Russia and, uh, you know, people from Turkey and from all these surrounding countries that are, in, in, as a result of the war and the revolution, are pouring into Western Europe and... America. And so a lot of these people are end up being drawn together. Do you think there was something about the act of ballet or perhaps the culture surrounding it that was particularly appealing to people who might have seen themselves as outsiders? I ask that because then again the, the, the New York City ballet which he founds a decade or so later, it's the same scenario. There are, there are emigres there as well, not necessarily perhaps aristocratic exiles but um, outcasts, you say, um, the dancers who joined the company in these early years were often outsiders, eccentrics, men and women with minimal education, a streak of bohemia and an intense physical desire to dance. What was Balanchine's attitude towards these new dancers and what was in, what was in it for them as well? You know, if you've come from a place that's been disruptive or you come from a family that's not offered you as much uh, organization or stability, Ballet is a way, and this I think uh, was really true at that time, it's often still true. You know, you could, 
you could become part of a place where there's a daily ritual exercise of taking some form of control over your body, which becomes a way of control over your life. And so there's a kind of sense uh, that it adds to your self-esteem in and of itself, and then the fact that you're doing it with other people creates, and this is what you're getting at, I think, in a way, you know, a class writ large is a company, and, and it becomes a home. About two-thirds of the way through the book, you stop almost mid-narrative and say, it's worth pausing for a moment over his achievement. He knew what he was aiming for. He'd grown up with it in St. Petersburg, but he was building from thin air what had taken centuries for kings and czars and commissars to establish across Russia and Europe. It's a direct comparison then that you make with what he's creating in America and what had existed before in Russia. Do you think that the driving force behind his ambition was an attempt to salvage something which the Bolshevik Revolution perhaps had threatened to extinguish? Was this all a grand, almost geopolitical idea he had in his head, or was it more personal ambition? I think it's both. And, you know, the geopolitical idea even wouldn't be, you know, I'm going to recreate Russia, because, yeah, there were problems there too, you know, and he doesn't come from the aristocracy, he didn't come from money or from stature, and so he's not somebody who has um, excessive nostalgia, even though he does have some nostalgia for the court and the imperial life and for some kind of idea of aristocracy as aristocracy as a as a human value, not because of money or stature, but because of stance and physical beauty in the organization of the body. But it's a difficult situation for him because he's you see this when he goes back to Russia. In 1962, he goes for the first time since he had left in 24, and he goes back with the entire New York City ballet. And he's terrified and mortified, and he, he can't stand the place. He has to leave halfway through the tour because he's near physical collapse. He loses weight. He's depressed. He's having a really hard time, even facing. But when he goes back, you know, he doesn't even have he's exiled from a place that doesn't exist anymore. There is no Russia for him. There is no Russia. There's not the imperial Russia. There's not the, there's nothing in Bolshevism or in the USSR that replaces it in any way, shape, or form. So his driving force, I think, was in some sense counter-revolutionary. And this is where, you know, it's the, it's the idea of establishing a republic of spirit and a place where the revolution that's going to happen is not a material revolution, like the Bolshevik Revolution. It's a revolution of spirit. And this is not an unusual idea for people of this, of, of some kind of involved in religious activities who leave Russia. But it is unusual, and somebody who didn't talk about it, really, who, who's sort of quietly doing this on the, you know, in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And everybody thinks he's making a modernist art, and he is. But that modernist art is also filled with the, the content of, of a religious content.
One of the things which makes this book so epic, and I, I do mean this word epic, is the fact that you have the ascendancy, the, the breathless, thrilling pace of success after success after success, but then you also have the fool, Balanchine, this titan, suddenly losing his grip and his dance is turning away from him. And as the final chapters of the book kind of unfold, it's it's so absorbing. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the death was was a very engrossing moment because it went on for a long time and partly that's because he died of a disease that was only diagnosed after his death which is a form of mad cow disease and it attacked him by attacking the very sort of instruments of his art he started to lose his balance he couldn't walk as well he would sidle along the walls, not wanting to show that he was in some way diminished. He always stood his entire career. He stood in the first wing to watch the performance. That's where he stood. He was the watcher watching the dancers. That was his role. And he started to have to sit or at least someone brought a stool, because he couldn't quite hold. One of his last curtain calls, you can see he's actually gripping the curtain because he might fall. So there's a way in which it's, his powers are being mysteriously removed from him by something that nobody understands. And he's a big doctor person, so he goes to lots of doctors. And they can't solve this problem. So eventually he uh, falls and breaks ribs and is hospitalized. And then there comes a sort of procession of people that move through his life. And then eventually, you know, he fades away and he can no longer, even in his later, latest and most almost demented stages, you know, he's calling the theater regularly. What's going on? What's going on? Why don't you call me back? Um, he's talking to the woman that he still loved at the time, who had been his partner for some years. Why don't you come? The minute she would come and leave, he would call her and say, why don't you come? You haven't come. He couldn't really see anymore what was happening around him. He couldn't grasp it, and finally he dies. And he dies an almost Quixote-like death. You know, it's just he dies. He's alone in the hospital at night. And then after that, there's a, a kind of moment of the grief and mourning that follows directly upon it. And this is a, a, a subject that then goes on for decades, but in the book I stop pretty much there. And I try to get into the issues that were facing them all, which had to do with legacy and performance, but also to give him his proper death. And I decided that what that was, was that because he had created a world where he lived in the real, real world of the stage, in this fourth dimension, he actually, two years before that, had choreographed his own death. And they all kind of knew it. And they talked about it. And they talked about it then to me later. And it's a ballet to Tchaikovsky, who was one of his primary 
vehicles and and um, favorite composers. It was the last. It's the it's the sixth symphony. It's Tchaikovsky's last work, and Balanchine did the last movement of that last work of the. It's called the Adagio Lamentoso. And it was really a work that was about grief. It was about mourning. It was about just the hugeness of a life disappearing. And it's an extraordinary dance. It was performed only once. And I, I do think it was a, a, a ritual exploration of his own mortality. So I do end the book inside this dance which is, I think, where he really ended his life. At the end of Apollo's Angels, you asked the question, is ballet dying? That was 10 years ago. How would you answer the question today? You know, that's such a complicated subject that I am going to deflect. No, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm going to deflect. Well, in that case, let me ask why... I'll tell you why I'm going to deflect. Okay. I'm going to deflect because... The world today is full of many, many artists and so many changing things that I don't think it's exactly clear where we are. And a lot of, a lot of things has happened. It's more porous. It's more, there's more movement in, in I think, the, the choreographic world. Is ballet itself, does it still have currency? Can someone reinvent it? I'm not sure that's, that's very clear at this point. What I can say is that Balanchine didn't I think he would have been surprised that his dances had lasted this long. He felt sure that his legacy, I mean, he said, these, these are dances that exist now, and they exist because of me and my dancers and the music and the light and the people we're all working with to create this world on the stage. And when you have different people doing it, even if they might have danced with me or not, it won't be the same. And so even if you are performing Agon or Serenade, it's not going to be my ballet. It's not the same thing. It's not my ballet. Those are not my ballets, he would say. And I, I think that's right, and that's really the core of what he was trying to do, because it was here, now, this present moment, not the future, not the past. We are making something completely present time and time was a big theme for him so I don't I don't mean just like these 20 minutes I mean these seconds are the important thing and that's in a way what he was trying to do in movement he was trying to help us experience time in its fullest way through a visual art combined with a musical art well, that is a majestic answer to a very unfair question. If you did deflect, <laughs> you deflected it very well. Okay. Jennifer Homans, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you it's very much for having me. Not at very all. Very much. We have many copies of Jennifer's book signed, very kindly. So if you would like one, please telephone, email or order online. Jennifer, thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you.